Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Celestine, and I'm happy that you've decided to join me here on the Celestine Show on BBS Radio Station One. As you come in here, I hope you will remember to like, share, and subscribe to my channels on bbsradio.com and my YouTube channel. I really do appreciate each and every one of you. If you wish to call in today with any questions for our guests, you can dial 888-627-6008. That number again, 888-627-6008. Now on with the show. Today, we are going to be speaking with entrepreneur, former military man, and author Michael Pope about his new four-part historical fiction thriller, it's a series now, Lincoln's Ghetto. This book series is for enthusiasts of historical fiction and Civil War narratives. It blends research historical details with the current African-American experience. It takes a fictional look into the intricacies of how the promises of the 16th U.S. president led to the current state of African-Americans today. Michael Pope, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for being here. Dr. Celeste Stein, let me just say, this is not only an honor, but it's a privilege to be with you after so many years, because, you know, we're homegirls, homeboys, because we're That's coming right. from the same block. So this is <laughs> wonderful to sit with you in this format after we've had a childhood together and uh, had similar career paths and we speak the same language. So Thank yes. you. Thank you so much for allowing me to be on your program today. Yes, I, I too am honored for sure, for sure. And Michael, I'd like to really just start by asking you how you came up with this idea for the Lincoln's Ghetto book series. Um, you know, I didn't come up with it. it. It was born in me because I was born in 1960 in the heart of the uh, civil rights movement, you know, and uh, my parents were somewhat engaged. My dad was a uh, federal State Department journalist, the only Black journalist on the staff that was covering the Africa desk. And when you're talking about 1965 civil rights era time period, you're talking about uh, a lot going on in Washington, D.C. at that time. And so he was engaged in some of that at the White House level. And so that was part of our um, our household DNA, uh, the discussions that were coming up, the things that were going on in the street post uh, MLK assassination were impactful. Um And they 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 sit deep inside of me. And, and anyone, anyone born from 60 to 65, it's in you. And, uh, and it's never left me. And, uh, you know, and so what inspired me to write this, some of it came from a dream uh, about uh, like the big moment in the book. And then others came from just my life's experiences and how I juxtapose that with the history of the African-American experience and based on what I lived through. So, yeah, I've been kind of um, noodling on this for, for quite a while. And, uh, and I finally uh, was able to craft it into a fictional full blown uh uh, novel series uh, this year or last year, I should say. Right. And what a time that was, you know, uh, for both of us to, you know, grow up uh, in, in Washington, D.C., which, you know, very few people are actually D.C. proper, real true Washingtonians, right? Um, <laughs> you know, that uh, experience, I can remember my dad driving us down when the rioting was going on and seeing, you know, the Molotov cocktails being thrown and that type of thing just really does have an impact, I'm sure, on our lives, you know, as we we uh, mature and grow, you know, you don't forget things like that. And so I can understand that this is 
honestly a part of, of one's DNA, you know, having grown up in a place like Washington, D.C. Yeah. Now, I wanted to, to also ask um, about the premise of the book, um, the Lincoln's Ghetto series. Let's let's kind of talk about that a little bit and, you know, the whole whole thought process behind it. Absolutely. Um, I'll ask a question. You know, what if uh, President Lincoln had reparations ready to go after uh, the Emancipation Bill was signed into law? But he was murdered and it never came to light and it was just sitting there. So that's kind of the premise of it, um, uh, that he had reparations set aside. Uh, but it was personal with him because it was in, in my fictional form. Uh, I created a, a scenario where he had um, he had one plus million acres of central Illinois land that he had purchased um, centered around the town of Lincoln, Illinois, which he was part founder of and developer of, uh, which mm -hmm. is the county seat of Logan County in the center, almost in the heart of Illinois, north of Springfield. And that's where he had his office, his own home. He worked out of there. He covered, he lawyered out of there and everything. Uh, so what if he did have a million acres? And then what if once he passed away, it was in his will that the only way that his descendants could have access to that one million acres is if they gave one quarter of it to uh, an African-American or a Native American, to, to, to groups of people that have suffered greatly um, under the, the development of the nation. So because, and so that being the case, um, I developed my, my world of fiction around that premise. Um, and thus um, I, uh, I, I entered the book with some history um, those who love history, uh, there's a lot of factual pieces in the beginning of the book and the prequel, something I call Lincoln's Gift. And in Lincoln's Gift, I go through some short chapters of fast history from uh, from the beginning all the way up through um, the 1970, about 1960. So you're talking fast, fast, uh, 50 pages worth of history quickly, but it also sets up the story. So within right. some of my fiction, I mean, my, my uh, historical facts, I pivot towards fiction. And inside of that piece. And so then the story begins. Um, so in that story, um, I, it, be, it really begins in 1977, Chicago, when a descendant of Lincoln decides that she wants to uh, actualize the will. And that comes with a requirement. African-American or Native American has to get part of it. So therefore, she needs to find an African-American or Native American to give one quarter of a 250,000 acres worth of land to. Um, with that, um, comes a lot of um, the things that sell books, which is power, money, and greed. And so <laughs> we're coming. Of course, after right. That. <laughs> uh, people are coming after that uh, 250,000 um, yeah. acres of land uh, in, right. in an ugly kind of way. So I have some big forces attacking uh, her, not specifically, but behind the scenes, um, some big entities, including the Catholic Church and the mob based out of Chicago. So that's it looks like uh, we have a caller actually already on oh line one. Oh um, I want to take a quick uh, uh, break and see if we can um, pull that caller up and see what they have to say. It's Brenda uh, on line one. Can you can you pull her up, please? I'm here. Hi, Brenda. How are you today? Hi. It's a gorgeous day in Austin, Texas. <laughs> It's lovely here in Florida too. We're in Tampa. Okay. So, did you I have a blind, question? Though, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Michael, uh, I, I know we have some descendants from uh, Thomas Jefferson here in Austin, Texas, but do you miss us? Uh, tremendously. I called about you today. Hi, Brenda. This is one of my uh, <laughs> mentors and uh, former bosses from uh, my life in television in Texas, in Austin, Texas. I love her dearly. Thank you for calling. And yes. uh, I don't want to get into a personal conversation yet. I'll call you offline. <laughs> but, All right. I, I am so proud of you. And um, where where did you get the 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 the, the spark to write this novel? Um, I tell you, um, you know, when we when I was down there back in the eighties with us when we were doing our thing, you know, when I started to get when I was exposed to Juneteenth, that woke me up to be honest. That's that's the that woke me up to like, wait a minute, what? And once I learned about what Juneteenth was. And the, the times I would go over to Houston Tillotson, I was listening to these speeches and talks and things that were going on in Austin. That resonated with me greatly. And then once I left after about what, 10 years, we were down there doing our thing. Um, I continued to craft some ideas about it. And you know me, I'm a creative head. And uh, through my travels um, and a lot of television work I've been doing since post Austin, um, I've gained a lot of uh, knowledge and experience about things. And then I tied my childhood of the 70s, all kinds of experiences from the 70s into this tale. Uh, and the spark did come from a dream I had uh, maybe 15 years ago about the, uh, the climactic part of the, uh, or the, t the turn of the story. I had a, a very vivid dream about that at a, in a very specific place. And uh, that place was Lincoln, Illinois. And I don't know how that got into my head. But when I traveled to Lincoln, Illinois to do some uh, underground research and interviews, I drove right in front of this particular place where this scene happened. It was pretty mind blowing. Um, and there I was standing there and I told my wife, I said, stop the car right now. I got out and there was this spot. I said, this is it. This is the place where this went down. And, uh, and so that's where a lot of that spark came from. And then my background in history has got, I dug into Lincoln at that point to find out, well, wait a minute. What if we did have these reparations? Where would the, the African-American community be if that were the case and we had those reparations coming into us somehow, some way through the federal government for the last uh, hundred and odd years since 1865 to 1965, you know, hundred years worth, uh, where would we be? Um, and so that's where, that's where I, I, I posed that question to myself and then to, to the narrative. Mm -hmm. Well, Brenda, wonderful, thanks wonderful. so much for, for calling in today. We do appreciate it. And, we're going to ask Michael a couple more questions. We're getting ready to take a quick break. And, and when we come back, we're going to um, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, his work as an entrepreneur and, and more, a little bit more about the book. We'll be back right after this. A lot of things have come to a screeching halt due to COVID-19, but you should know that the court system in Tennessee is still open and holding in-person hearings for orders of protection and other types of abuse cases. If you have a hearing date, double-check on where your hearing will be held. If you need assistance on an order of protection or temporary restraining order, contact the Legal Aid Society at 1-800-238-1443 or visit our website at www.las.org. Welcome back. You're listening to the Celeste Stein Show. I'm Dr. Celeste Stein. I'm here in the studio here with a Michael Pope, who is entrepreneur, author, and uh, also former military man. And Michael, I wanted to ask you, you know, so from start to finish, when we kind of had the dream and, and got this idea to turning this into a tangible product, 
How long did it take you? Um, yeah, the uh, the writing process. I'm, you're talking about the writing process, right? Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, I started uh, really digging in in January of last year. I retired from the federal government as a video producer for uh, U.S. Department of Homeland Security after 20 years of on the road shooting and doing a um, news magazine show and covering stories of 9-11 and hurricanes and all the things that are attached to Homeland Security. And I was uh, one of those people that was on the metro train every day, scribing on blank pieces of paper by hand, writing notes and, wow. and doing chapter by chapter just off the top. Um, wow. So not counting all those years of, of scribbles. Um, <laughs> yeah, in January, uh, I really dug in and uh, I, uh, I retired and I needed a job. I needed a thought. I needed a hobby. I needed an interest. You know, now you call me an entrepreneur because this is a business. Um, uh, authoring is a business. It's not for me. This is not a bucket list thing. This is this is going to be who I am from this point on. Uh, but I also own two retail stores here in D.C., uh, mm -hmm. Rockville, Silver Spring, Maryland. So my wife and I are heavily engaged in the retail side of life where we we're entrepreneurs in that uh, aspect as well. But it took me for sure. Uh, I was going for a November 1st publication date up on Amazon. So 11 months. Um, I think I got it up by November 6th or 8th. So uh, let's say I began as soon as I walked out of that door at the Department of Homeland Security, I got to writing because uh, I knew I had this stack of ream of notes that I needed to convert into um, a word document. And yeah. uh, and, and so, yeah, um, it, a, a good a good part of the year. It definitely took me to get manuscript uh, first draft manuscript one um, to an editor. And yeah. when they got I think it, a lot of people, Michael, you know, have this idea of doing a book, but actually getting it to that tangible product is is oh quite gosh. the task, you know. And so hats off to you and congratulations Thank for getting a four part series completed because that's just amazing. I mean, and, and you know, so congratulations on that. Um, I wanted to also ask you what advice you would give to others who might be thinking of writing that first book or, or even a series as in your case, um, you know, when it comes to, to writing a book, what, you know, what advice, because it seems like you can have the idea to do it, but how do you actually get to it, you know? Yeah, um, motivation and commitment and determination are, are at the top of the list. You got to want to, because this is not fun. Um, uh, if you're a creative person, it's the fun part is creating. And then when that's over, when, once you've created it, it then it's work. So um, I would advise now you, it's a series. And uh, I didn't come into this as a series. It was one big story. But my coach said, hey, let's break this up into into four books. So that meant I had to expand um, the story. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, boy. Okay. Um, all right. So she said, yeah, let's 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 uh, I love what you're doing. Let's let's cliffhang this thing after each book to want to get to the next book. So let's cliffhang every chapter. Let's cliffhang every paragraph. Let's cliffhang every sentence, Michael. I'm like, OK, I'm back to the drawing board. But I had all this stuff written. So everybody, everybody has a story to tell. There is no doubt. Everybody lives a life of of whatever it is and whatever is inside us. And if you uh, want to get it out, you can. Now, if you're not good at writing, you can outline your story and have someone help you write it. Um, that that is good in, in writing. But people who are in journalism or creative writing or regular writing, or in your business, um, I advise people to really consider writing a book because even if you're not considering yourself an author to that degree, but you have a business, 
if you do create a book, then the book can also be the catalyst to get others who do love to read and like to learn by reading that whole side of life will come to your business. So you can help build your business by that. Um, right. So a young person, young people have great things to talk about. And I really encourage young people to write and read. And that's a part of my reasoning for doing this because I want young people to begin to read again, like we did. And I do, we, you know, there's readers and there's not a lot of people are scrollers and viewers of information, but when you're a passive looker, you're not really absorbing the information because you're not using your third eye to really create what that could be in your mind. You're taking someone else's image and saying, that's what it is. And, and, but we shouldn't do that as free thinking humans. We, I feel we should read the text and decide what we or what to glean from it and what we want to create from it. Um, so Ah. Um, so my, my charge is, you know, mm-hmm. is, is educational. Um, you know, uh, uh, Brenda knows that we were heavily, we were engaged in the university system down in Texas and a lot of our friends, we were in television big time. And, um, you know, I'm coming from the educational perspective that I would like to use this text as something to help teach others. But for a person considering writing a book, say, oh boy, this happened to me. You can write a short story like this and, or like that. And, you know, people will love it because it is short. Um, you can write a longer epic because people love to dig in. So there are millions of billions of people around the planet who love to read and love to decide for themselves what they want to get out of what they're reading. So um, I encourage people to write and to, to think about it. If you're in school, at, even in the, in the high school level, to write some stuff and make some stories and, and share those stories with other people. And the more you practice that, even online, the more you get used to telling a story whether it's true or a world of fiction that you can create on your own. It's no more fun to me than to create a world because I'm half introverted here, you know, and I like being in my cocoon down here and leave me alone <laughs> and, um, and digging in and learning about things and then listening to people and, and taking all that and just shaping it into something uh, that's my narrative. And so everybody has a, a point of view and a narrative, you know, that's what Twitter and all that stuff is for, but, Hey, take all those twits and X's and, and, and FB comments and all like that and turn it into something tangible sure. uh, because you never know. There's someone else who feels the same way you do. And it could be a wonderful thing because you could teach somebody and open somebody's mind and you can help somebody with either what they're struggling with, what they're thinking about, what they like to communicate, what they like to discuss amongst each other. And so um, I tell a person uh, that may want to get into it, think about helping other people with your words, not, you know, not hurting, but helping um, and figure out a way to say it and then start learning how to do it the right way. Right. I'm sure you're hearing like I'm hearing that AI is becoming a big thing when it comes to writing, um, whether it be music, books, etc. What do you think about that and how AI is now kind of getting into the creative space, if you will? Yeah, it's another tool um, that we use. Um, I use it a little bit on some of my graphics. I'm putting graphics in the in the in the uh, in the books, uh, just smaller ones, and but they come from my ideas. They're my prompts. They're in and in, in, you know it creates it. Um, there may be some legalities associated with it that haven't been fleshed out yet uh, right. because you know you sure. know when it comes to imagery, it's grabbing the word the end of the web. If someone put their stuff on the internet, it's out there for the internet to grab and create into a, its own version of it. Um, I don't know where that's going, uh, but I, two sides to this coin, obviously, um, you know, there's, it's a tool. And so AI is only as good as you, you can uh, program it to be. 
So if you're good on your words and, and, and direction, you want to be a film director, book director, and your, your actor is AI, you know, say, hey, AI, do this. Nope, mm-hmm. that's not what I want. Do this. And so you're still the person that's controlling the, the computer that and whatever, the digital bits and bytes that are creating this information. Um, so, so from that side of the argument, it can be a useful tool. Now, I've seen a lot of uh, a lot of ads coming across the feeds about, hey, you can write a book in 15 minutes, just put it in AI, and, you know, you sell it to the world. Right. I am not in that camp because uh, yeah. I'm yeah. a human and I want human to human interaction. Uh, I don't, you know, AI is not human and it's only replicating information as it pulls it out. Now, it can you, you can tell it to do that. It can mm-hmm. create some words. If you do that, take those words and redo them into your into your voice. You know, mm-hmm. so this is going to be the difficult challenge, you know, that's been talked about forever now that we all have to face. Um, so right. thank you for allowing me to, to explain to the world. This is not an AI story. <laughs> <laughs> this is live. This, this is, is real. This is real. <laughs> I, I tell you what, though, my di- I love writing dialogue because I've lived in so many communities from my military life overseas to living in the South and the East. <laughs> And so I'm able in, in the African-American communities, you know, there's re- I love language. So I'm able to dialogue out in various speakies and, and ebonics and, and, and <laughs> Italian words and however people screw up the language. You know, I love doing that part because that makes it human. Hey, mm-hmm. I can't do that. Hey, no. I don't know how to talk like we talk. You know, they, I don't know how to talk like Italians talk. Hey, I doesn't know how to talk like someone from. Georgia or Mississippi or, or Louisiana. That's right. <laughs> I got some Asian stuff in there, you know. So if you don't, you can't get AI to do that. So that's right. so yeah. And I mean, it's it's kind of pulling from what's already there. But if you have something in your head that just is only your unique experience, I guess that's what you have to remember. You can you can use AI for your grammar and putting it together, the spelling and all of that. But mm-hmm. when, when it comes down to it. Mm-hmm. Our unique stories are mm-hmm. what to me are going to be so valuable, you know, going forward. And I hope people will remember that and, and and be able to use AI as a tool rather than just turning things over to AI. But it's here. And so you better start thinking about it and how, you know, can can this be utilized in an in an effective manner? I mean, ethically, the- ethically you have to think about it like uh, it, AI can make you a liar. So, you know, you, you can say it's the truth and you, it'd be a lie. The whole thing is a lie. But Ooh. just a book, right? You can tell AI, hey, create this story for me. I'll, I'll put it out there as nonfiction. And yeah. it's bogus. You know, I've heard about federal, uh, lawsuits and cases that were brought up in court. And attorneys or you know, they had AI find it up. And, hey, uh, AI brought up this case. And here we go. And the judge said, that's not even real. Right. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that crazy? I mean, but that's that's where we're at. And unfortunately, you know, when I was working on my PhD, we were kind of studying all this. And I was like, oh, this is kind of terrifying that there are like no laws on the books for some of this stuff yet. And so each case will be sort of precedent setting, you know, before the next. And, you know, yeah. we've lived through this before, but you would think that we would be a little more knowledgeable at this point and try to get ahead of the curve than, you know, just opening the Pandora's box and you know, oh, it's out the box now. And, you know, now what do we do? You know, so, but that's, that's the human experience as it is. Um, One thing I wanted to mention again, we do have an 800 number. If you'd like to call in, that number is 888-627-6008. Again, 888-627-6008. And 
Um, another thing before we take a break, I wanted to also ask you about when, you know, getting back to your book, uh, what are some key takeaways that you want people to have after they've read one of your books? Yeah, um, I got a few here because uh, this is kind of a hybrid novel. So I'd like people to take away the uh, the, the history of of uh, the, uh, the the American experience and the American experience from the from the beginning uh, has been a complicated one and uh, just just basic U.S. history is very complicated. It seemed like a, a noble effort to have a, a free and democratic society. However, um, the the uh, the racial divide took place. Uh, when emancipation took place and, you know, there were riots that kind of sparked all of it. So it was 1863, but like by 1906, there was the Atlanta massacre race riot. And in 1908, there was like the Springfield, Illinois race riot. And it, it kind of amped up, it fueled a lot of this hatred between the races for these freed peoples and with, without any, without any back, backbone or any kind of support. And when they tried to build something, it was taken away by people to, uh, with hate in their heart. You know, it was even that what it called the Red Summer of 1919 was multiple race riots around the nation. D.C., um, geez, uh, Chicago, uh, a lot of cities. It was called the Red Summer of 1919, where a lot of race riots happened. And we know of um, Tulsa, Oklahoma later on and some of these other horrible incidents. So. I don't really harp on those. I mention those, but keep those American historical facts about the DNA of how the nation was developed uh, in mind. And, you know, today we're talking about the 14th Amendment. It's in the news every day now, right? Because someone's challenging this. It's like, okay, are we trying to hide all of this or do we need it to be known amongst our young people so we can be a more fair and just society? So the more people understand about how the nation developed and then look at where we are today, you know, I want people to take away, consider your thoughts and your behaviors uh, when you deal with people who are not, don't look like you on both sides of the fence, you know. Um, so that that's a key piece. Um, the other tropes in there about love and, and uh, are in this story and resiliency and trying and stick togetherness and stuff like that. Um, that's in the story, but in the core of it, it's about how do we stop the hate and the division and, and understand where the division came from. I think that's what I'm approaching. Like, let's look back. Okay, let's take a look at this at young people, millennials, exes, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, who may be too busy now to pay attention to it. Um, so that's the takeaway. Like, like, let's learn about who and what America is based on our history, not based on what people are telling us today. And if we, if we, if we don't pay attention to our history, it's going to happen again. It's the same thing, you know, so. Right. Um, yeah, it's, amazing. it's funny, this thing hasn't just happened in the United States, you know, I think people forget that, you know, but in other countries, you know, like India, you know, uh, where there was the case system, you know, you, you have to realize, okay, this is not just unique. Um, it has happened other places. What What is it really about, you know? And so with that, I want to ask you uh, one more question before we go to the break. And that is, you know, how important is it to really examine history and really not be afraid to pick it apart and ask some of the hypothetical questions that might really need to be asked? The importance is how courageous are you in today's environment? Because today you're labeled something if you dare 
to look at the past and, and try to show what it was and, and, and want to dare to fix it. You're mm-hmm. called names, right? It's all about name calling now, right? We know what those words yeah. are. The woke thing, what does that mean? Yeah, I've woke up to the reality of the facts. Oh, <laughs> don't don't understand the facts. Just deal with what we're t- you know. So I say the importance is how courageous are you? You know, and if you're an American that's supposed to be the most courageous nation on the planet, then this is where our true courage is going to start to show up. Because if we if we cheat on it now and just go for the okie doke, we're going to get ramrodded. You know, um, they opened up the borders in America way back in the way back. Right. And it just allowed any old European peasant, poorest of the poor to come over here and gave away millions of acres of land to these people. Uh, and that created the country. Okay, mind you, we needed people here. I get it. But some of the worst came um, with hopes of an opportunity. So, you know, you got to look at the the way, well, what happened to the slaves that were freed and you didn't give them anything? You know, there's no pull them up by like name MLK said, you can't pull a bootless man up by his bootstraps. Yeah. You know, MLK was adamant about this. It's just not a fair. So why do you give everybody something except this group of people? What's it really all about? So is there some and we we have other discussions about that. But is there a deep is is there a deep rooted fear that people of different you know melanin are going to be any better, different, or take over whatever? And that's not supposed to be the American uh, concept. The American concept is all about everybody, all welcome, every color of the rainbow is like yeah, we're gonna make this thing better. We're gonna get the best of every shade of the the melanin rainbow, or whatever, <laughs> and make this place the bomb. But what happens? They just people don't want to get together on these things and culture is everything but we have an american culture that's supposed to blend all cultures and it's very very difficult for people to do that and it's been that way since what i'm reading and discovering since the beginning since that slave emancipation piece <laughs> kind of kicked a lot of this opened up this wound you know and I, yeah toothpaste kind of out of tube at this point but you know this our next generation has a good chance of making things better and that's why I hope this my works will help um, spark that. Right. Yeah. I, I don't. I, you know. Often I wonder. You know what what programs and things can be put in place so that the the playing field is more level because that's really kind of what you know kind of needs to happen. I think you know it, it's it's just so unfair the disparities uh, from everything you know. Um, healthcare and uh, education and, and all those sorts of things, you know, where do we actually have the opportunity to affect positive change? So we, we do need to kind of look into that. And, you know, I hope to see some special programs started to kind of get us moving in the right direction. We're going to remind you that if you'd like to call in, our 800 number is 888-627-6008. Again, that's 888-627-6008. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in a moment. When it comes to relationships, there are some obvious signs you can use to spot someone who might be abusive. First, they have a tendency to want to rush into a relationship. They may also show signs of jealousy and mistrust, and you could find they expect you to be perfect and will try to cut you off from other important relationships. They could also be abusive towards animals and children. To learn more about the signs of dangerous individuals and how you can identify and avoid unhealthy relationships, contact the Legal Aid Society at 1-800-238-1443. 
And welcome back to the Celeste Stein Show. We are chatting with entrepreneur, retired Air Force Public Affairs Superintendent and U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Public Affairs Multimedia Producer and Author, Michael Pope. Michael, <laughs> glad, glad to have you here. Definitely a pleasure. Um, another question I wanted to ask you is, uh, where did your love of history come from? We talked a little bit about writing and um, you know, your encouragement uh, to other uh, writers was great. But where did your love of actual history come from? Yeah, it certainly didn't come from me growing up in D.C. public schools. Uh, <laughs> no knock on DCPS, but um, yes. <laughs> after D.C. public schools, um, it came from travel. There's no doubt about it. Um, uh, you know, I don't know if you remember, I left town about uh, when I was about 19. You know, you guys went to the college route and I did the Air Force route. Right. And um, they're like, where's Mike? Where's Mike? Oh, no, I don't know. And uh, so but what that Air Force route did, it put me out there in the world. And I knew I was going to be in journalism communications to some degree. That's just you know, what my dad did. That's in my DNA. But I took the, the Air Force tact. And of course, in military, uh, you're on the hop, we call it. You're TDY Charlie. You know, you got to go. You're hot to go all the time, right? So when yeah. you go, you know, depending on how you process where you are, you know, you're going to absorb so much about the world in, in, in different places and different spaces and different people. And uh, that got me wondering, like, man, where are they from? My curiosity button just like, boom, it got pegged big time being out there in the world. Um, I was stationed overseas in Europe and Spain for about three years. So I did a lot of uh, road work. I was traveling. Um, seeing all of that as much as I could see. Um, uh, some of the travel became because I played sports. So the military is big on sports. So you play sports, you travel. Um, so it took us to different places and I got a chance to see and ask questions and take photos and be like, man. And when I got back to the world, uh, I would say, all right, I'm finishing up this degree. So I enrolled in the University of Texas and Texas State University and ended up going to Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma and getting in public affairs. And, you know, being in public affairs, when you're in public affairs, you swim in everybody's swimming pool. Right. I mean, <laughs> you don't have a choice. You got to go cover this story. You cover this information. You know, so, um, yeah. And I got I was working in the broadcast spectrum in the radio world, covering stories, newspapers, covering stories. And being a journalist is the greatest job in the world, if you can stand it. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> you get exposed to everything. So my love for history came from digging in. Uh, when you're a journalist, it's not much different than being a historian or a lawyer, because if you don't know, you're lying and you don't want to put that out there. So if you right. got an editor that's worth their salt, they're like, how do you know? You know, who said that? Where'd you get right. that? You, you got an editor going to challenge you every paragraph, you know? Um, yeah, well, they say there's his story and... <laughs> <laughs> the actual story, right? So I, that's the, one of the reasons I got into journalism as well. You know, years and years ago, um, you know, I thought about the fact that uh, there's so many different perspectives and, and, you know, we all bring our own individual um, knowledge and experiences into what we write. So if you're not getting those experiences and stories from all different sorts of people from all different source sources and walks of life you're not getting the whole story you're getting a piece of the story and you know that's not necessarily the the truth in, 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 which is what i think we're trying to get at here right. you know at the end of the day you want what is the reality of this yep. you know and the only way you can find that is you know kind of putting all the pieces out there and then 
you know, making your determination from that. And people have to be uh, careful, especially today. You know, I, I am a big uh, proponent of media ecology. And that's just simply, you know, knowing where you're getting your media from, you know. And if you only get it from one source or one place, you're definitely probably not hitting on the truth, you know, whatever it is. Correct. So it's it's really important to open your mind uh, to other possibilities and then make an educated uh, decision from there. But sometimes people are a little lazy, don't want to necessarily read all the different things. But I learned that actually from my dad and just watching him, he would read like, it would be crazy, Newsweek, Time, uh, you know, the Washington Post, the Star, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, all those would be at the top of the steps, you know, yep. in the morning. And so it would be, you know, I'd just be like, oh, my gosh, you know, and he was a young journalist, um, you know, growing up. I, you know, and it's so funny um, that didn't kind of he didn't really even talk about that kind of till till later to uh, myself and my siblings. Thank you me. know, it was something that was part of his his life and career. And then. I ended up going into that and found out he was a, a journalist in his early like twenties, you know, um, before he came to this country. But yeah, so very, very interesting. Um, it looks like um we have another caller on the line. It looks like we have Donna calling in from Virginia. And I want to make sure we have enough time to weave in a few questions. So Do Donna, are you there? Can you hear us? Yes, I can. Okay, and I, well, and I welcome. just want to thank you. Just want to thank you, Dr. Stein, for having me on. Um, yeah. And Mike, I've known Mike for for quite a while, and uh, he's so inspirational, and he always uses his uh, God-given talents. I just had a couple of questions, if that's okay. Sure, go ahead. Okay. Um. Well, the first one he's already pretty much answered was uh, what inspired him to write his book or his uh, series that he's writing, Lincoln's Ghetto. And the other question is, why do you think it's so difficult for so many people to recognize all people as being equal? Oh, boy. Yeah. Hey, hey Donna, how's retirement? <laughs> <laughs> good question. It, it's really good. <laughs> Uh, Donna Burton uh, is an incredible photographer. Uh, worked with her for many years. Uh, one of someone with impeccable integrity. I mean, she was a a marine. She's a badass, and I love Donna to death. Uh, she's an inspiration to me. Uh, she inspired me to retire and to think that I could do it too. Because I was going to stick around, you know, another couple of years up there. But uh, thank you for who you are and being in my life. Um, that's a deep question, probably over my pay grade, but I will say that uh, the difficulties as doing my research, I'm finding that uh, for unknown reasons to me, people um, can accept change or difference. And it's difficult when people live a certain kind of way based on their bucket of knowledge to accept people that have a different bucket, you know, and, and back to culture. Culture is everything. Uh, you know, your culture don't match with my culture. So we really can't talk to each other. But yeah, we can. Uh, you can enhance my culture. I can enhance your culture. Instead of seeing it that way, you have to mm -hmm. have, you know, people looking at things half full instead of half empty. Um, that probably is a lot of human nature, I'm guessing. Um, I don't want to just slam Western European psychology because I'm not that deep. But man, um, 
you've been beginning to feel like that, you know, I, because of this work, um, you know, I'm finding people who uh done the incredible things in this country that were African-Americans. I'm just slanting that way a little bit right now. And, uh, you know, they've been torn down by others who are not that way. But then when I dig into, uh, it's led me to dig into African history and find out that, you know, they didn't really have a whole lot of armies over there taking over territory uh, in, in the DNA of those cultures. They weren't like trying to take land and countries uh, like Europeans were, were colonizing because maybe they didn't have enough resources, whatever reasons people went to go after other folk. And maybe that has something to do with this. Maybe there's this uh, feeling of superiority based on melanin. It's crazy uh, because um, on, on the African diaspora, I mean, that melanin is not an issue. It's, a, it's about intellect and, and strength and, and, and peaceful uh, negotiation amongst people and respecting roles and parts of, in society and the way it's supposed to be set up. I am not a sociologist, but just the way I'm seeing it, like, man, why did why does um so much of this country's leadership allow so much mayhem and disconnection to happen over multiple presidencies, you know, from whatever? It's like allowing things to happen, you know, at the highest levels of leadership. And Donna, you know, you and I are retired military. Leadership's everything. It's not about how you yell yeah. at people. It's about how you inspire others to do their best. If you don't do that, mm-hmm. then you're not a leader. And so you need to be, if the world needs to be led by humans that are leaders then we need people that are going to inspire others to get better with what it is that they have. And, you know, the higher you go up, the more responsibility to be that. And we were exposed to incredible leaders and some lousy leaders um, uh, being in the military box. Um, you're, you got to, you better be a leader uh, because you got people to deal with and then you can't be a knucklehead anymore. You know, you have to inspire and, and lead and teach. And you can't do that by yelling and screaming and, and, and calling people names and calling them out because they made mistakes or did something that you didn't like. But uh, yeah, maybe failed leadership. Maybe that has a lot to, to do with it. Maybe that's part of the answer that I'm trying to get to here. Just failed leadership across the board. It may or may not have a color attached to it. You know, we want to attach everything to color, but maybe not. It's just people not being able to be effective leaders and understanding what leadership is really all about. Um, so, you know, Lincoln... Oh boy, he he went through some changes, but he was a he was an incredible leader because he was able to negotiate. He wasn't always right. He wasn't really about this uh, freeing the slave thing, but it was about economics. And you know, the South was killing it with the money and the agriculture, and the North was trying to be industrial. Uh, you know, so Lincoln was like, "Okay, we need to compromise here because we need to tax all these slaves." And the Southerners like, "Oh no, don't be taxing the slaves, man." He said, "Well." You know, they are human, you know, you can't really be treating them. Well, let me think about this more. So I'm pretty sure Lincoln went through some change of mind after all of this. But, you know, it led to a horrible war. So, um, yeah, I, I'm just going to answer that with, you know, failed leadership and people that say they want to be leaders. Um, and I hope, mm-hmm. I hope that kind of gets to it. And you don't have to agree with me on this one. But that's how that's that's the camp I'm in. You know, I, I take leadership seriously. And so I look to leaders like, OK, help me get better. You know, not that I'm going to lead everything, but I'll lead my family and I'll lead my group the best I can. But I need positive examples. And you got all the experience now. Show by show your leadership. You're up there talking. Show mm-hmm. me that I can be better. I'll believe in you if you, mm-hmm. if you impart that to me. You know, I thought Obama was really good at that uh, mm-hmm. in my life. I think Obama was really good. I think maybe Reagan was pretty good at that. I wasn't a big Reagan guy, but I think he had that effect on people. You didn't hear him screaming yeah. at people. You know, um, he was savvy. He used his savvy to negotiate and get bipartisan um, you know, agreement in, in the House and the Senate. Um, so without that ability, 
as a leader and uh it's going to make some things break down and make people feel like they have the power to say what i want to say because i represent this camp or that camp so yeah um yeah, Donna, um thank you so much for calling in did you have any any uh further uh questions or or feedback for mr pope here today uh he 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 did a great job answering that question um yes. i really <laughs> took away the the cultural portion of it uh, if we could get all these coaches to come together, that mm. would be such a beautiful thing. And I also took away the leadership portion of it, um, also extending that to the families, not just in the in the out in the jobs in the world, but also mm. if each household in a family, if the leadership in each household uh, could could be very strong, then that would carry out into the into the world. Um, thank you so much for allowing me to thank ask you questions. And Mike Pope, uh, yes. I thank you so much for your inspiration as well. All right, Donna, stay in touch. Thank Sorry. you. Thank you, Donna. Um, I, I love okay, that you're point. Welcome. Yeah, I love that point she just made about um, the households because often we look to people in the spotlight, you know, for that leadership when it should start at home. So that's that's an excellent point. I, I love to hear that. Everything um, what did you say? I'm sorry. <laughs> Everything starts at home, right? Um, That's right. That's right. It really does. Um, I wanted to go back to the book too and talk to you and have you explain a little bit uh, on each book, the premise, you know, um, and I know you have uh, a prelude as well. If you could kind of talk about that and we'll, we'll get to that free download that I'm sure everybody will want to hear about towards the end here, but um, talk, let's talk about, you know, one through four, just give us a little, a, a little bit on each one. Absolutely. Um, uh, just back up a little bit, you know, that whole, um, family and blending of cultures is what's lives all inside of these books, that whole aspect of that. So that's why I also deal with that as well in a, in a, in a, in a very direct way. But yeah, um, so, uh, there's five books, um, ultimately, um, the first uh, book is very short, but and it's included in book one, but it's also going to be our free the free download. It's called Lincoln's Gift, and it's the gift I spoke of, the will. And, uh, you know, the will that uh, someone's going to give um, an African-American or Native American 250,000 acres in the middle of uh, <laughs> Illinois. And that's a game changer for any person to have that kind of land. Uh, it's an amazing, it would be an amazing thing, right? So uh, book one is a historical look back well, I, I take it. I, I take it all the way back to the the Laurentide ice sheet covered America with billions of tons of ice, and then here comes you know the migration flood. But uh, yeah, so that that's what you get in the free download. But it doesn't just give you a history uh, background. It it leads into this family thing on how the will, who wants the will, how the family is structured, and how it's broken up uh, into pieces of the Lincoln legacy, and then who's going to get that will. And then I get into this guy, his son didn't want it, this son didn't want it, this grandson didn't want it, next, 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 until we get to 1977. Then at the end of book one, it says, it's time to execute the will. And so when you get into book one, it's called Lincoln's Touch. And I introduced the three main characters, which is what book one is all about. And, it, and I set up their backgrounds, um, the, the good guy, the bad guy, and the good guy's son. So the good guy and the good guy's son are what is this is all about them and the love between the two, the father and the son. And what happened with that relationship and how all of this affected their relationship. They had no idea this was coming at them and they got caught up in this whole Lincoln mess. 
and didn't ask for it, didn't know anything about it. But other forces on the other side of the fence were spinning up this stuff and they got tight. They got pulled into it. So book one uh, gives you all three characters. The bad guy is a bad guy. He's a bad guy. And he wants it. Power, money, fame, sex, all that stuff. He's all about that. You know, so you got a classic standard, you know, antagonist setup, you know. So and I call it a three ring circus is book one. So it's ring one, ring two and ring three, you know, ring one, bad guy, ring two, good guy or ring two actually is the son. And then ring three is the is the good guy, the father. And then they I mingle all of that a little bit together. Um, and in book two, uh, technically book two is called Lincoln's son, which is about the son, mostly, mostly about him and his what happens after this thing kicks off and uh it explain it, it and i build his world what happens to him i'm not going to give all that away but a lot went down with this kid and uh i do jump five years so first we start out as a 12 year old now he's 17 he's a senior in high school and he's jumped off and he's in the middle of something he had no clue right and uh all of these things that we've been alluding to for the last 30 40 minutes come right on top of him um, and he's a special, unique, special young man. And his, so is his dad. And so our heroes always have to be special, have some some kind of power, some kind of something about them is going to help them endure or fail or sacrifice or, or give up a lot. And they got to be able to deal with it or not. And so they that's what book two is about is him. And then when it gets to the end of it, that turn is about to happen. And then book three is called Lincoln's Shame. And it's a damn shame what happens. Uh, and you're talking about a mess that goes down with him. And all these three characters are coming closer and closer and closer together. In book three, it erupts and an explosion happens that you didn't see coming. And a couple of them. And uh, yeah. And so it digs in. And it gets to be really exciting at that point. Like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. No. Oh, my God. No. And um, <laughs> by book four, um, it's only like popcorn. It's like, okay, we got to resolve all of this, all of it, all three factions and their entities and everything is now, I got a Scooby gang over here going at the good bad guy. I got the bad guy with his demons on this side and they're, they're going at it in, in the framework of the law. So it's a legal battle. It's it's a it's a it's a mess, and there's a lot of stuff going on, <laughs> and there's cultural differences that allow either side to progress or to slide back or to win or lose, and in the end, um, you know, something happens, and um, in an unexpected way. Mm-hmm. I so, I'm looking. I, oh, the last one. I'm sorry. The, the last yeah, book. Yeah, the last book. Four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the last book. Lincoln's War is number mm-hmm. four. And that's when the end happens with all of these factions go to war. It's a, it's a courtroom battle and an outside courtroom battle. It's a lot. Of, it's a lot happening. And I tied it all happens all going kind of fast. Mm-hmm. Um, very detailed. I get very uh, specific and a little bit graphic and gritty. So this is not for high, uh, middle schoolers. This is a real talk, real world kind of language book. Um, I'm not F bombing all over the place, but. It gets tough and it's a very difficult situation for everybody and everybody is doing some people are doing some bad things and some people have to do tough things to take care of bad things. And so it's got some tough talks some tough people. Um, and so book four, Lincoln's War, they go to war and in the courtroom and outside the courtroom until we get resolution to this thing. And it, 
it's it's a ride. It's a ride. Yeah. And I, I've got so so interesting. You know, <laughs> I, I know people cannot wait to pick up a copy of all four four books because it sounds like one leads you get you got to get that next book right. <laughs> um, it looks like we we have about one minute for oh. a final question. Right. Um, and I, I see we have a caller, one more caller, Do- Dominique, uh, who's also one of our homeboys from Maryland, <laughs> I guess, or homegirls. I'm not yeah. sure. Um, but um, let's see here if we can. Dominique, are you on the line? Yes. Do you hear me? Yes. Welcome. Hi, thanks. Um, I had a quick question, maybe a fun question yes. um, from Mr. Pope. Um, what would you do with 250,000 acres of land, Lincoln's land? Oh, my. That's a good one. <laughs> so, so now you've got me uh, create my own fiction, huh? So create my own world. Uh, yeah, for 250,000 acres, you can create a world, right? You can create, depends on where you're coming from. I personally would probably uh, sell a lot of it off to people that are needing opportunities. I would create opportunities. I would build areas and buildings and facilities that are going to help in uh, the area, um, you know, to create some kind of world trade organization there. I would create a place for people to come and speak. And I'm, I'm about education. So I probably would build educational places, but also, you know, build communities and, and with, with, with some requirements. And not that it's, you know, a kingdom, but hey, we, we, we we're a peace loving community over here. Uh, this is how it gives over. We got a lot of music and arts and, and, and all that kind of thing and intellectualism going on. Uh, does that make me liberal? Nah, I just want good stuff in my life. Um, so 250,000, I can't even wrap my head around that. I don't even know what that looks like, but yeah, I probably would sell a lot of it to people that need it. Uh, cause I don't need all that, of course. Um, so that, that's, that's probably what I would do. Uh, I'd give my wife half and say, good luck with all that. And then I, 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 we have a, we have a blended family. We have a blended family of five kids, you know, and they're all grown and they're all engaged in all this stuff I'm doing. You know, and uh, <laughs> so all of them, all of them, they, they're a big breed. Um, I call them my little apes and uh, <laughs> apes have a strong community and we're a strong, we're a tight group. And uh, I would give them all something. I said, all right, how you going to build your one fifth out of this? You know? <laughs> yeah, let's see what you're going to do with it, right? I'll throw it back on Dominique. What you going to do with your portion? <laughs> <laughs> That's, listen, uh, Dominique, um, great question. Great question. We actually have, we're, we're just about out of time. And I want to make sure that Michael has the opportunity to tell people where they can find this uh, Lincoln's Ghetto series. Absolutely. Uh, Amazon.com. Uh, just type in Lincoln's Touch in Amazon Books, and uh, book one will be right there. Uh, book two is sitting here, soon come. Uh, book two is Lincoln's Son, uh, soon come. And my goal is to get all four up by April. So you won't be waiting for that next for that next hit. Uh, you're going to need to know what happened to this kid and this guy and this thing and this thing. Oh, my God, what happened? Um, I'm doing my best to get him out there. But uh, as you know, Celeste, this is a difficult uh, business to <laughs> – to craft and to develop. Uh, yeah. So yeah, thank you for, for being who you are. So amazon.com and also barnesandnoble.com is carrying it. And uh, we're working on spreading that to uh, more entities. So that's yes. fine. Lincoln's touch in the Lincoln's ghetto series. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate your joining us today. Thank you to all of our callers, all of our listeners 
And I wanted to add, if you would like to book Michael Pope to speak at your next event or conference, you may visit the Bishop Stein and Associates website at www.bsaprincorporatedinc.com. That's www.bsaprinc.com. And make sure you go to the Speakers Bureau page, and that's where you can book Michael if you'd like to have him at your next event or conference. Well, that's all the time we have for now. We will see you again in two weeks for our next live show on bbsradio.com. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on bbsradio.com. I'm your host, Dr. Celeste Stein. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you soon. And thank you again, Michael Pope. All the best. Thank you, Dr. Stein. Thank you.